If you have a copy of Scripture this morning, we are in the book of Acts, book of Acts chapter 17. Again, Acts is in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, fourth book of the New Testament. So it's in the latter half of your Bible, Acts chapter 17. This morning, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I think you'll see as we read through this why the title of the message is Turning the World Upside Down. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollano, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom, and on the Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous And taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of his brothers before the city authority, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who, con- those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. I want you to stop and think for a moment about living in the United States of America. Sure, we just had a, you know, a pretty divided election by the world standards. Granted, people are responding in many different ways to it. But when reality strikes and we truly stop and think, we would realize that we are far better off than the majority of the world's population. I mean, we have in America nice houses, with lots of room, even if you think your house is small, trust me, it's not small in comparison to places like Africa and other parts of the world. Most of us own a car, 
Some of us have more than one car. We have computers, we have cell phones, we have smartphones, we have cable TV, we have electricity, we have running water, and we have all kinds of modern gadgets that many in a third world country would not even have a clue how to use. If we decide that we want something, we just go to the store a few minutes away from our house and we buy it. And depending on what we want, we will have our choice out of several varieties of the item that we want. If we go to the grocery store, we can have our pick of produce, our pick of beets, our pick of drinks. Whatever we want is there. You know what happens in America because we have so much? We get comfortable. And we know that everything is just convenient for us. And because of this, we have transferred that into our spiritual life as well. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, they are church shopping. We're just shopping for a church. So what we do is we go to different churches. We try to find the right one that provides the right services for what we want. And so if that church feels good, if we like how it looks, if we like the music, if we like the decor, whatever it might be, then we attend, unless, of course, we have something better to do on that weekend, and then we wouldn't attend. In reality, we look for a church that is really all about us. Now, I've showed this video before, but I want us to look at this video of a church that we typically look for. a church where every member is passionately, wholeheartedly, and recklessly calling the shots. I have a busy work week, and by the time Sunday rolls around, I'm tired. So how about a church service that starts when I get here? Can do. When you arrive, we begin. This guy, he plays by his own rules. We want to find a church where if he starts screaming, we're not the bad guy. Say no more. If you're and screaming, you stay seated. The others around you can leave. You know, financially, Terry and I don't give a lot to the church, but we still like to know who does. All right, if you join now, you'll know what every person gives in detail. When I'm in the church service, can my car get a box and a wax? Not just that, but an oil change and a tune-up. What happens to the Super Bowl? That's asking too much. I'm serious. If I'm going to join, I want tickets to the big game. All right, you join now, and we'll get you there. I like a pony. Look in your backyard. <laughs> Where it's all about you. Now that may seem funny, and we think to ourselves that's an over-exaggeration, and that may be so, but the latest statistics say that fewer than 10% of supposed evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. Yet Jesus calls his followers daily to take up their cross and to follow him. And in this passage this morning, we see a great example of this in, in uh, the Apostle Paul. He had just been 
accused falsely and beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi. And now he comes to Thessalonica. And in the face of opposition, he boldly proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's driven from Thessalonica and he goes to Berea and he preaches to some more folks. And from there, he will go to Athens and he will preach the gospel to highly intellectual people. However, it is in Thessalonica where he and Silas are accused of turning the world upside down. Now to be clear, this concept of turning the world upside down is not speaking of some sort of political rebellion because we are commanded to live quiet and peaceful lives in godliness and we are commanded to be subject to governing authorities. With that said, we should turn the world upside down not by confronting with the gospel or not by not confronting with the gospel, but by confronting with the gospel. And as Christians, we need to understand that Jesus is the King and the Lord over all, including all elected officials. I believe that we are to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we have to be committed to the gospel of Christ. So first I want us to see that the world needs to be turned upside down. The world needs to be turned upside down. You know, we can look at this passage of Scripture and we can say, well, why does it say that, that they turned the world upside down? And, and is there anything wrong with our world today? Well, let me tell you that the world needs to be turned upside down. The world as a whole lives in rebellion against the Lord of the universe. As we looked at last week, everyone is born into sin. We are sinners from the beginning. And we will continue in our sin unless our world gets flipped upside down by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that cares nothing about the things of God. We see this in all aspects of society. Many scientists insist that God is not the creator and they try to say that we have all evolved from some sort of primordial slime through chance uh, over the course of billions of years. To deny God as creator means that there's no one to be accountable to. And we can live however we want to. And if we are here through chance, then there is no eternity. And when we die, that's it. That's the end of life. And if this is the case, then we get to determine what is right and what is wrong in the world. And if we get to determine what is right and what is wrong in the world, then there is no moral absolute truth, which is binding to all people for all time in all circumstances. And in fact, the moral relativists will say that the only absolute truth is this, that there is no absolute truth. Listen carefully, church. This is where we are as a society, as a world. Today, there is no absolute truth. And for that reason, the chief virtue in all of society today is tolerance. What does that mean? What it means is that society dictates to us what is right and what is wrong. And if society dictates what is right and what is wrong, 
then what is right today can be wrong tomorrow. And what is wrong today can be deemed as right tomorrow. And so what happens is things like homosexuality and transgenderism and other sinful actions can no longer be looked at as wrong because society has drifted towards tolerance because everything must be tolerated. Furthermore, if you then think that there is an absolute truth, you are now narrow-minded and how dare you not be tolerant of what someone else wants to do with their life. You have no right to not be tolerant because society has made tolerance the chief moral absolute. This is our society. We live in a time where tolerance is king when the U.S. Supreme Court wants to hand down decisions saying use whatever bathroom you want. Homosexual marriage is okay and perhaps worst of all it's okay to legally kill your unborn baby right up to the moment of birth. But we need to spare murderers on death row and we need to keep prayer out of our schools. The world needs to be turned upside down. We are complacent in sin and brazenly rebellious against God. And it needs to be turned upside down. Secondly, if we are going to turn the world upside down, it has to be accomplished through a commitment to Christ and His gospel. Turning the world upside down is accomplished through a commitment to Christ and his gospel. I think it's easy to look around at our world and say, man, this world is messed up. How does it get turned upside down? The apostle Paul was once committed to extinguishing Christianity from the face of the earth. Remember that? And when he was confronted and converted, he changed. He then became committed to Christ, to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ being a Christian is not about being committed to a bunch of rules or some sort of religious system. Rather, it is about being in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul understood this, which is why he said that he counted all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. In our verses this morning, in both locations, Paul is committed to Christ and his gospel. He is sharing the truth of the gospel with the people. Paul did all things for the sake of the gospel. His primary cause was to advance the gospel. And after being beaten and thrown in jail in Philippi, that Paul decided, well, you know what? I need to go on vacation from proclaiming the gospel because this gospel proclamation thing is just a little bit too hard. No, that's not what he did. Instead, he travels roughly 100 miles to Thessalonica, walks into synagogue, as was his custom, and he begins reasoning with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. They didn't want to hear it, and he's forced out of Thessalonica, so then he moves on to Berea, and he does the exact same thing. Paul is going to preach Christ no matter what. He was not going to be stopped. And I read this, and I read this passage of Scripture, and it brings conviction even to my life. I'm convicted that everywhere Paul went, he's always preaching Christ. And I think especially here in America, we've been wrongly convinced that there are two types of Christians. There are two types or two ways of being a Christian. One is that there are Christians who are committed followers of Jesus Christ. 
And we say, well, this is for those people who love to do evangelism and they are gluttons for punishment and they're they're willing to fail and they are what we call super spiritual people. They give up the comfort they could have to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps they do not have the things that we have and perhaps they give a large portion of their income to Christ and they are totally devoted to Jesus. And, and we say, well, look at them. They're, they're a really strong Christian. And what happens is we say, well, that's for the super committed Christian. And there are few of those we would say in the world today. And, if, and, and we would say, well, look how committed they are. But what happens in America is we say, well, if you don't want that, that route, if you don't want to be the super committed Christian that you're, you know, you go to church and you study the Bible and you witness to people. If you don't want to go that route, we have another option for you. Hold up. There's another option. And that is you can be a comfortable Christian. Or some would call it a cultural Christian. You see, the comfortable Christian, they will usually go to church unless there's something more important for them to do. They will give some of their money to help the church, but not too much. They will sometimes volunteer to do things and support the ministry of the church as long as they have the time to do so. For them, it is nice to go to church because it helps them feel better about themselves. However, Christ and His church are not the center of their lives. In fact, Christ and His church isn't even the focus of their lives. Because the comfortable or cultural Christian would not dream of being inconvenienced for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the problem with our way of thinking. We have no evidence in Scripture whatsoever to back up the fact that there are two types of Christians. And we certainly have no evidence from Jesus Christ Himself. Granted, we're not all gifted in the same way. We can't all be preachers. And we certainly can't all preach like the Apostle Paul did. And we're not all called to serve on the mission field in a foreign land. But we are all called to be fully committed followers of Christ. There's no such thing as a comfortable or cultural Christian. It's just made up. It's what we made it out to be. But only sold out followers of Christ. That's all there is. He has told us to seek first the kingdom of God and His Righteousness. He warned the church in Laodicea that they were neither hot nor cold. But because they were lukewarm, they're going to be speared from his mouth. If we think that we can be a nominal Christian, we only fool ourselves because we are either a follower of Christ or we're not a follower of Christ. We're not like, oh, well, maybe only when I want to am I a follower of Christ. You're either following or you're not following. The Lord with just a few committed followers, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy, traveling around a pagan world, turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. As Henry Varley said, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man fully consecrated to him, to which D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists ever, responded, by God's help, I aim to be that man. 
There's only sold out Christians. In America, we've fooled ourselves to thinking that you can be a cultural Christian. And we look around our society and we throw our hands up in the air and we wring our hands and we say, what in the world's going on today? Because we say that you don't have to be a committed Christian. You can just be a Christian when you want to be. Thirdly, turning the world upside down uses the gospel. Turning the world upside down uses the gospel. If we look at verse 3, this is exactly what we see Paul doing. We see him using the gospel. And this is what we have seen throughout the book of Acts. Let me be clear. It's not self-help books that's going to turn the world upside down. It's not books on how you can have your best life now. Or how every day can be a Friday. It's not about believing in order to get something from it. That's not the gospel. Paul himself said this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this is what Paul did. He would go into a city and he would enter the Jewish synagogue. He would preach the gospel and, and he would share the message. And when the message was rejected, he would then preach to the Gentiles and he wanted people to be saved and he would first speak to the Jews and if they, they received the word of the Lord, then they would naturally want the Gentiles to hear it as, as well. And if they rejected it, then, then they couldn't say anything about it, about him going to the Gentiles and delivering the gospel. However, let's be clear, the message that Paul shared was the gospel. The gospel turns the world upside down. And by its very nature, the gospel is divisive. We looked at this several weeks ago, but when the gospel is clearly proclaimed, you either believe it or you don't believe it. You are not neutral. You either, you either receive it, you either believe it, or you don't. And so when Paul goes around proclaiming the gospel, it would cause controversy and it would cause division. And Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Some would believe Paul and follow him and others would reject it. And sometimes they would get angry and they would stir up opposition. In fact, in this passage of scripture, we see exactly what's happening. Look at verse five. The Jews are jealous. And what do they do? They form a mob. And they get everyone in an uproar. And then look down at verse 13. The, the mob shows up in Berea. So they go 46 miles to Berea from Thessalonica in order to cause some trouble. Remember, you don't just get in your car and drive 46 miles. Why'd they do this? Because Paul was proclaiming the gospel and turning the world upside down. And if we're going to turn the world upside down, we have to use the gospel. Now, why is that a problem? Why is it a problem that, that Paul is proclaiming the gospel? Well, first of all, because the gospel is all about Jesus. Look at verse 2. It says in verse 2 that Paul reasoned with them. Which means to examine a topic. So Paul examined, thoroughly examined the scriptures with them, showing them Christ in the scriptures, proving to them that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The, the, the word 
means uh, proving, or the idea of proving means to provide evidence for. And so Paul was taking the scriptures and then taking other scriptures and proving what he was talking about. This teaches us that the scripture is the basis of the gospel. When you want to talk to people about Christ, then take them to the scripture. Show them what the word of the Lord says. It's okay to use a booklet or a a tract, but make sure that people know that the verses that you are using are coming from the Bible. The scripture is vital in bringing people to salvation. Not only that, but the gospel is all about Jesus. What did Jesus ask his disciples? One of the greatest questions in all scripture that Jesus said to his disciples was this, who do you say that I am? It's a question we all must answer. If Jesus really is who he claimed to be, then everything else falls in line. If Jesus is not who he claimed to be, then this whole thing of Christianity is just a scam. And it's it's very um, easy to try to share the gospel with someone and have them uh, constantly chase rabbits With things like, well, what about evolution? Or what about someone that had never heard the gospel? Or what about people that are uh, in homosexuality? Or what about evil? If God is so good, why is there evil in the world? But listen, while those may be good theological questions, the answer to those questions doesn't save anyone. In order to be saved, one must understand who Jesus is first And what he has done second. And the gospel is all about Jesus. It says that Paul reasoned with them from the scripture. Well the New Testament wasn't written yet. So this is referring to the Old Testament. So Paul from the Old Testament showing them that Christ had to suffer. And rise from the dead. And showed that Jesus was the Christ. Perhaps he took him to Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22 or perhaps Some of Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, the point is that he went to the scripture to show them that Jesus was the Christ and that he had to suffer and rise again because the gospel church is all about Jesus. So why do people get upset with the gospel? Why is it that sometimes when people hear the gospel, they get angry and and they get upset about it? The answer is actually simple because the gospel confronts us in our sin. And cause us to surrender our life fully to the Lord. Unless God does a work in someone's heart. And their heart is softened by the Lord. The sinner does not look. Or does not like to be confronted in their sin. Do you like to be confronted with things? Do you like that? You say, oh boy that really felt good. I love, I love it that I was confronted. You don't typically like it. Not only is the gospel all about Jesus, but the gospel confronts our sin and rebellion against Jesus. The gospel confronts our sin and rebellion against Jesus. When Jesus first appears on the scene, and he has all of his his disciples, they all taught that he would be a conquering king, that he came to deliver Jewish people from, they thought that he would be a conquering king, that he came to deliver the the Jews from Roman oppression. That's what all the Jews believed. They thought, man, we're finally going to be free from this Roman oppression. 
when the Messiah comes. But instead he came and died for sinners. Now, if Jesus came and died for sinners, the natural implication of that to the Jew would be what? That they are sinners, right? I mean, if Jesus came as a Messiah, first to the Jew, as we've seen Paul proclaim many times, that would indicate that Jews must be sinners. What? They're not sinners. The Jews keep the law. Those Gentiles, they're the sinners. You see, the Jews wanted a king that was going to overthrow Roman rule and they would have a good life and, and, and they would just, everything would be great. They didn't want a sign to show up and confront their sinfulness. That is the problem of the gospel. Jesus is portrayed as Savior and Lord. And if He is Savior, then He must be, we must be saved from something. There's something that we must be saved from, which is sin. And there must be something that He is Lord of, which is our life. You see, until you confront the sinner in their sin, you've not even given them the gospel because you are allowing them to continue as Lord of their own life. And so when we try to talk to people about the Lord and we never address sin, you're not even, you've not even started the gospel. And Jesus is, is, if they say, well, you know what? I can live in my own sin and you not confronted it, then, then they remain Lord. And Jesus, he just kind of along for the ride of their life. And that's exactly the gospel that we've delivered in America. Time and time and time and time again. That you're not a sinner. You just, you just need Jesus as your Savior. Well, why do you need Jesus as your Savior if you're not a sinner? This is why people were so upset. Because Paul revealed to them their sin. And they were confronted with the gospel. They were so upset that they dragged one of Paul's friends out and are screaming and yelling at him. And they were so upset they followed Paul to Berea because the gospel confronts our sinfulness. Listen, church, this is how you turn the world upside down. You remain committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You use the gospel to tell the world that they're living in sin. And that's really hard to do in a world that preaches the chief Virtue is tolerance. So I've seen how some of these folks in Thessalonica responded. It was, wasn't so good, but the folks in Berea, they had a different response, which leads actually to my final point this morning. What is a right response to the gospel? What is a right response to the gospel? And I want in these last few moments to look at how those that believed responded to the gospel, especially those in Berea, because from that we will see this right response. First of all, seek the truth, examining Scripture. Seek the truth, examining Scripture. Look at verse 11. Speaking of the Bereans, it says this, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, Examining, examining the scriptures daily 
to see if these things were so. It says they were more noble. Why does it say that? Because they received the word with all eagerness. And what did they do? They examined the word to see if what, if what they were being told lined up with the scripture. This is not about these guys trying to find some sort of error in the scripture so they don't have to believe, but rather they are seeking the truth and they are doing so by examining the scripture. Let me just say the scripture is filled with so much. It's filled with so much. You know, we often act like faith is a shot in the dark. Like it's this idea where we just, we just kind of hope everything works out okay. But that's not true. Faith is based upon what we read in God's word concerning his son, Jesus Christ. It's not based upon some sort of little gut feeling that you have or what we think might be best because your feeling will not stand. Your feelings will betray you. But faith is based on the truth of the word of God. We read the Bible and it tells us all about Jesus Christ. And we have uh, this truth in God's word. And, and that's where our faith can stand on that. And, it, and when our faith is in Christ, because we know it's true from the word of God, it stands the test. And because we have the truth of the word of God, it tells us all about his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not based on fiction. It's not based upon a gut feeling or what we believe might happen one day or, or the fact that we think things might turn out or, oh, I think things will end up okay. But our faith is based on truth. And so we must seek truth through examining Scripture. But secondly, in a right response to the gospel is this. We must believe in the gospel by trusting Jesus as Savior. It says that they examined the scripture. Then it says that many of them therefore believed. So we examine the truth through the scriptures. We look into the word. We see what it says. We recognize that the Bible reveals to us that we're sinners standing before uh, God guilty. And he is a holy God. And how can we in sin stand before God? However, God in his grace and mercy sent his one and only son, Jesus, so that all would believe in him. All would believe in him and be saved. We read how he paid the penalty that we deserve. And because of God's mercy and because he sent his son to pay the price, our sin bearer was Jesus Christ. We read that we are to believe in him. And we will be saved. That's what it says. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Not might be saved. Not hope to be saved. Not, not uh, one day eventually be saved. But you will be saved. He doesn't lose any of his own. He's, he's not up there. Well I hope that one of my own come to me. Everyone that is to come to Christ will come to Christ. Believe in the gospel, trusting him, Jesus Christ, as Savior. Lastly, a right response is this. Follow Christ, no matter the cost. Follow Christ, no matter the cost. You know... There's a lot of talk these days, and, and it's really been this way um, ever since I, I got into ministry. 
I'd hear preachers sometimes and people talk about making Jesus Lord of your life. Making Jesus Lord of your life. And especially as a student pastor, I'd hear this all the time. We, I'd hear people stand up and proclaim you know, about, about the Lord and, and they'd say something like this, well, you know, you may be, you may be saved, but Jesus isn't Lord of your life. I'd scratch my head. I'm like, I'd search the scripture. Where's that at? Where's that at? Where's that at in scripture? And sometimes I'd confront people and not have a good result because they'd get angry with me. Kind of like Paul. Let me be clear this morning. When you receive Jesus as Savior, you receive Him as Lord. You don't make Him Lord. He is Lord. And now, as we've already stated, that does not mean that you are fully sanctified because that is a progression. But you don't make Him Lord. He is the Lord. Now, because Jesus is Lord, and by the way, He is Lord over all, because He is Lord, we must obey Him with all areas of our lives. I want you to look back at some of these verses. Look back at verse 5. It says that a mob attacked the house of Jason. He is a relatively new believer. And a mob is attacking his house. And he's facing persecution for his faith. To the point that they drag him out. And they said that Jason, this man, had received Paul and his companions. And look what it says in verse 7. They are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. All. This would include Jason. They're saying he's acting against the decrees of Caesar. Does Jason turn back? Nope. He follows Christ no matter the cost. Why do you think it is that this early in the early church, often when faced with heartache and persecution, why do you think it is that they didn't turn back? Why do you think it is that, that when confronted and beaten and, you know, told that, that Jesus is not going to come back again and when, when they're constantly confronted, why do you think that the early church didn't turn back? Could it be that they understood that being a Christian meant suffering? I would say so. Because Paul taught them in Scripture. Paul taught this very thing, that being a Christian would be suffering. Listen to his words. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. First Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. So he's writing back 
to the church at Thessalonica. And he's saying, when I was with you, I taught you this. You would suffer. Church, being a Christian should mean suffering. And when we lead people to think that receiving Jesus as their Savior is all about an easy life of comfort and no pain and no suffering, we do a great disservice because that is not the case. Granted, knowing Christ gives peace in the midst of suffering and joy in difficult times, but it does not mean the absence of tribulation or trials or suffering or pain. And this is why when we place our faith in Christ, we must be thoroughly convinced of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be thoroughly convinced of who Jesus is and what he has done because an emotional decision for Christ will crumble in the midst of persecution and pain. It happens all the time. And so we follow Christ no matter the cost. We follow Christ no matter the cost, church. We don't weigh the cost and say, well, it's going to cost a lot to follow him, so I better, better not worry about it. When you come to Jesus, you follow Christ no matter the cost. I close this morning with this. Missionary Del Tar, who served 14 years in West Africa, shared his story. It points out the price that some people pay to sow the seed of the gospel in hard soil and what it takes to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ. He said, I was always perplexed by Psalm 126 until I went to Sahel, the vast stretch of the savannah more than 4,000 miles wide just under the Sahara Desert. In the Sahel, all the moisture comes in a four-month period, May, June, July, and August. After that, not a drop of rain falls for eight months. The ground cracks from dryness and so do your hands and feet. The winds of the Sahara pick up the dust and throw it thousands of feet into the air. It then comes slowly drifting across West Africa as a fine grit. It gets inside your mouth. It gets inside your watch. It stops it. The year's food, of course, must all be growing in those four months. People grow sorghum or milo in small fields. October and November, these are beautiful months. The granaries are full. The harvest has come. People sing and dance. They eat two meals a day. The sorghum is ground between two stones to make flour and then a mush with consistency of yesterday's cream of wheat. The sticky mush is e eaten hot. They roll it into little balls between their fingers. They drop it into a bit of sauce and then they pop it into their mouths. The meal lies heavy on their stomachs so they can sleep at night. December comes, the granaries start to recede. Many families omit the morning meal. Certainly by January, not one family in 50 is still eating two meals a day. By February, the evening meal diminishes. The meal shrinks even more. During March, it's even less. Children succumb to sickness. You don't stay well on half a meal a day. 
April is the month that haunts my memory. In it, you hear babies crying in the twilight. Most of the days are passed with only an evening cup of gruel. Then inevitably it happens, a six or seven-year-old boy comes running to his father one day with sudden excitement. Daddy! Daddy, we've got grain, he shouts. Son, you know we haven't had grain for weeks. Yes, we have, the boy insists. Out in the hut where we keep the goats, there's a leather sack hanging up on the wall. I reached up and put my hand down in there. Daddy, there's grain in there. Give it to mommy so she can make flour and tonight our tummies can sleep. The father stands motionless. Son, we can't do that. He softly explains. The next year's, that's next year's seed grain. It's the only thing between us and starvation. We're waiting for the rains, and then we must use it. The rains finally arrive in May. And then, and when they do, the young boy watches as his father takes that sack from the wall and does the most unreasonable thing ever imaginable. Instead of feeding his desperately weakened family, he goes into the field, with tears streaming down his face, he takes the precious seed and he throws it away. He scatters it in the dirt. Why? Because he believes in the harvest. The seed is his. He owns it. He can do anything he wants with that seed. The act of sowing it hurts so much that he cries but as the African pastors say when they preach on Psalm 126, brother and sisters, this is God's law of harvest. Don't expect to rejoice later unless you have been willing to sow in tears. And I want to ask you, how much would it cost you to sow in tears? I don't mean just giving God something from your abundance, but finding a way to say, I believe in the harvest. And therefore, I will give what makes absolutely no sense. The world could call me unreasonable, and I will give anyway. I must sow, it, sow regardless in order that I may someday celebrate with songs of joy. Listen, church, this is how we turn the world upside down. It's not through a political revolution. It's not through believing in yourself. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is because we, like Paul, you and I believe in the harvest. It is because we realize the world needs to be turned upside down and we are committed to Christ and his gospel knowing that the gospel changes lives because it's all about Jesus and it confronts us in our sin. And so I asked you this morning. First, do you know Jesus? And second, do you follow him no matter the cost? Church, he calls us to a revolutionary commitment to him. And his gospel. He calls us to not be comfortable. He calls you and I to turn this world upside down. And as long as we remain complacent, it will never be so. So this morning, maybe you're here.
And you'd say, I don't even know Jesus as my Savior. I've never been confronted in my sin. And I need to know him today. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you and share with you. Or maybe this morning you'd say, you know what, Pastor? I'm just kind of here. Maybe you've fallen into a state of complacency and comfortableness. And it's time for you to take the gospel to the world. To turn it upside down and stop being so comfortable in your Christianity. Whatever it is, if you need prayer, if you just need to come pray, if you want to pray in your pew, I just want you to know I'll be standing down front. Let's close for a time of prayer.